Hi, and welcome to Research Talks, a podcast series that explores how research is making an impact on people and policies, with a focus on the how. Brought to you by IFPRI. I am your host, Sivan Youssef, and today we will look at how researchers go about collecting data painstakingly from the ground up in very remote places so that food and nutrition policies can be backed up by evidence. Here's a preview from Emily Schmidt, a senior researcher with IFPRI working in Papua New Guinea. The first task was to go to Papua New Guinea and not spend time in the capital per se, but actually get out in the field and try to understand how rural households, which is really our focus in this project, are um, surviving, how they're making a livelihood, what are their challenges, what are, where do they see their opportunities. In April 2015, climate scientists noticed something scary and severe forming in the Pacific. They crunched the numbers and they all arrived at the same conclusion a very strong El Nino event was forming. Now, El Nino is a regular and year-long event that pushes west winds and warm water across the tropical Pacific towards South America. Some places get more rain, but others get drought. Unfortunately, the Pacific region got drought. El Nino did substantial damage in Papua New Guinea a country in Oceania, and Australia's closest neighbor. The farmland in Papua New Guinea was devastated. The Australian government approached IFPRI to talk about agricultural resilience in the country. Emily Schmidt, who you heard earlier, was in that meeting. The Australian government, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, came to IFPRI to discuss about potential opportunities for IFPRI to begin engaging in Papua New Guinea. The largest share of their overall development assistance, as I understand, does go to Papua New Guinea. So it's a, it's a really important donor to that country. There were large areas of the population that were facing significant food insecurity situations. However, there was very little data to back up or understand or target efficiently any type of food aid. So they came to IFPRI and they were quite interested in how we could start to build up some of these databases and data systems and really more robust data-driven um, analysis to start talking about policy and development assistance. Why has there been historically such little data? This is due to a lot of reasons. First of all, Papua New Guinea is really far away. It's just a remote location. It's not remote for Australia, but for a lot of the rest of the world it is. And then, again, its topography is is pretty daunting. You're going from very flat lowlands on the sea level to quite high mountainous regions. At the same time, you have heavy, significant rainfalls. So you can imagine just maintaining road infrastructure or any type of infrastructure within some of these very rural, um, less developed areas is quite difficult. Now that has created one of the most biodiverse countries in the world. But in terms of being able to get in and actually um, run any type of a survey or anything that would be nationally re representative, it's very cost prohibitive. So if Pri agreed to do this project, and you and another colleague were basically the leads, right? That's right. 
So Todd Benson and myself were, were sitting in the meeting with um, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and we were both quite keen and interested to look into some of these issues, largely because Papua New Guinea is a country that hasn't been explored as much in terms of more robust socioeconomic data systems. So this ended up being quite a big challenge and something exciting that we we were pretty interested to collaborate on. Did you um, know much about Papua New Guinea before the project started? My grandfather was uh, stationed there and spent quite a bit of time in Papua New Guinea. And my grandmother was from Australia, only learned about Papua New Guinea through a few letters between my grandfather and my grandmother during World War II. How I started with IFPRI was working in the Ethiopia office. And I was lucky enough to collaborate with who I think were some of the original thinkers around building data systems to inform policy and Ethiopia, they all put in the Ethiopia Rural Household Survey when Ethiopia was at a very similar state with very limited information systems and data collection back in the late 1980s. Now Ethiopia has very talented enumerators, really good survey firms that are all locally built and they're informing their own policy. So I think there's a big opportunity and and to do something very similar in Papua New Guinea. If pre-embarked on a proof of concept in the country, just to get an idea of whether there was capacity to do research and to get a basic snapshot of food security. The last consumption expenditure survey was implemented in 2009. That's a decade ago. There was a demographic and health survey underway, but it was running into delays due to logistics and financing problems. The first task was to go to Papua New Guinea and not spend time in the capital per se, but actually get out in the field and try to understand how rural households, which is really our focus in this project, are um, surviving, how they're making a livelihood, what are their challenges, what are where do they see their opportunities. These are people who are day-to-day, similar to anyone, going through and finding ways to feed their families and, and have welfare. And what I did find is, of course, Papua New Guinea is nothing similar to anywhere I've worked in Africa. The crop systems are different. They're largely root-based, Uh, Whereas in Ethiopia and other places, they're largely grain-based. So one challenge that comes about is in grain-based systems, you have a harvest. You have production that is planted. It grows up out of the soil. But this is all harvested in a season. When you have a root-based crop system, you're not going in and harvesting everything at once. So measuring root crop systems is a really large challenge because all of your produce is underground. And then you did focus groups. We linked with World Vision International, and they were starting programs in four areas of Papua New Guinea lowlands. So the survey that we put in was in these four areas. One of the first areas were in Medang province um, in the middle Ramu area. So in order to get to Middle Ramu District in Papua New Guinea, 
you re- you'll be on a road, a forestry road, so it's quite slick. It's uh, clay-based soil, so if it rains, it's as if you're driving on ice. And that's important because it did rain. <laughs> you're on that road for about four hours, and then you're on a a dinghy with, you know, an outboard motor for about eight hours to get to one of the places where we were working. It happened to be that on one day when we were sitting in a focus group, we saw clouds rolling in and the breeze started to pick up. And this was a breeze that was quite welcome because, as I mentioned, it's a tropical climate. So it cooled down a bit and we were thinking, you know, this could be quite good until all of a sudden we realized there was a serious tropical storm that was coming in. So it took us a long time to get out of there. We we ended up waiting overnight. Um, we left early in the morning with the, the boat. We had quite a bit of difficulty to get down. Well, now it was upriver. And, um, and when we finally did get to the place to meet up with our vehicles to go back on that forest road, that forest road was, it was, in, it was not passable. And at this point, I learned about uh, something that's extremely important in Papua New Guinea culture, which is called wantak. And wantak in Tokpisin, which is the language that Papua New Guineans speak, means if you think about it, it's one talk. So in other words, they speak the same language or they are of the same kinship group. One of the forest access vehicles who is in the forestry business, which are these massive, huge tractors with amazing traction on their wheels, more like tanks, rolled up out of nowhere and happened to be a wantok of one of the small public motorized vehicle transportation um, fellows who were sitting at this boat landing. These small, you can think of them as small minibuses in rain on very muddy roads. They're just not going to get anywhere. The forest vehicle pushed our minibus van, this public motorized vehicle, um, up and down all of these forest access roads because it was the only thing that could get up and down these roads until we got to the land cruisers on the paved road where we were able to um, move back into town. And it was at that moment became clear that this type of social security network is often what is very important to some of the welfare and livelihood of individuals in these rural remote areas. So can you talk to me a little bit about how all of the different partners shaped the project? World Vision was absolutely critical to the entire survey implementation. They knew the area. They had the resources in terms of boats and vehicles and on-the-ground knowledge to move our survey teams and uh, help with survey logistics. So we linked with UNICEF, and they have linked with the University of Papua New Guinea, and they were very open to um, thinking through ways we could collaborate. So they actually loaned, they procured and loaned us the anthropometry equipment. So these are scales and height boards, looking at the height and weight of children and understanding if children have the appropriate nutrition to be growing properly. We were able to go in, measure 
uh, children. And then we donated all of those resources to the local health posts by request of UNICEF. So that was just a lovely external thing that occurred. The University of PNG also identified that iodine deficiency is an important issue in rural Papua New Guinea. They had requested that we collect salt samples in order for them to do iodine deficiency tests. So we collected the salt samples and sent them to the University of uh, Papua New Guinea to do the lab tests on, on iodine samples. In terms of iodine deficiency, we do see a large um, variation across different salt brands. And this is something to really start thinking about in terms of how are salt brands marketed and how are they regulated. We also found that more remote populations just don't have access to marketed salt or, or iodized salt. Emily's team launched the pilot survey at the end of April and had all of the data collected by the end of July, a three-month data collection effort full of many more transportation difficulties and adventures. They collected household surveys for more than 1,000 households, and then they went to Washington, D.C. to analyze the data. But they didn't go about data analysis in the usual way. So the data all get loaded onto the cloud at this point, even from Papua New Guinea. And we have all of the data here in Washington, D.C. And at this point, there's there's a choice. And these choices have trade-offs. One is we can sit as researchers. We tend to love to sit and sift through data and categorize it and put it into different buckets and redo it and recategorize it and rethink. And this is part of our daily lives. However, as I mentioned before, we were really, a, a large goal of this program is to strengthen capacity within country. We invited government officials to come to Washington, D.C. and actually work with us on the data. And this was really important because, again, they have more localized knowledge in terms of what they see and what they know in Papua New Guinea that can inform some of the results that are coming out of the household data analysis. So we spent two weeks together looking at the data and trying to understand and make sense of what we were seeing in terms of results. So what were the results? We find that about half of our sampled individuals are under the poverty line. And the poverty line sits at about $1.25 in Papua New Guinea per day per person. So this is saying that a large share of the population, more than 50% of the population that just aren't consuming enough food, and we have an even larger percent of the population of our sampled group that are not eating enough protein. So this is quite a shocking indicator. And so we find that about 32% or a third of the children in our sample are stunted in their growth. So that means that they're just, they're too short for their age. These stunting results also tend to be intergenerational. So you can imagine a mother that's malnourished may be birthing a child that, that is already at um, a lower level of, of, of nourishment and of growth. What is your team planning on doing with these results? So these results now have been communicated a lot to policymakers within Papua New Guinea, as well as develop, development partners um, 
that are working on Papua New Guinea specifically. We gave a, uh, an evening course to the University of Papua New Guinea that is looking at data-driven policy analysis. Most of the students in the course are from a government um, department. The University of Papua New Guinea courses were also designed to help students identify key master's theses that they want to explore for their final master's thesis. Anyone can download these data and also begin to start looking at them and, and coming up with their own analyses. We've learned a lot about uh, Papua New Guinea, but also about how to build and strengthen analysis systems within country and find ways to evaluating solutions to some really large development challenges. A big thanks to Emily for sharing her adventures and results from this project, which is only just beginning. For our listeners, you can read up more by Googling IFPRI and Papua New Guinea. There are tons of fascinating papers. You can even play around with the entire data set if you're feeling wild and researchy. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcasts so you don't miss a single episode from IFPRI. Till next time. <laughs>